but everything just vanished. Security and safety just vanished. We're praying for our enemies, but out of fear. But we kept praying, we kept praying until the Lord conquered our hearts and we began to pray and we prayed not out of fear, but out of love for our enemy. All he knew, he didn't know hallelujah, amen, praise God. He only he knew Allahu Akbar. So he's shouting Allahu Akbar. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help right now on the Voice of the Martyrs radio network. Hi, this is Todd Nettleton, and I want to welcome you back to the Voice of the Martyrs radio network. This week's episode of VOM Radio is going to be a little bit different from most of our programs. Recently, we had a visitor from Syria here at our VOM headquarters office, and he had a chance to share with the staff an update about the church in Syria and how God is moving in that nation. Rather than sit down in the studio and do an interview with him, I wanted to turn the mic over to him completely for this week's episode and share with our listeners exactly what he shared with our VOM family here. I think you'll be encouraged, I think you'll be blessed, and I think you'll be equipped to pray more effectively for Syria and for our brothers and sisters there. So I welcome Brother John, as we call him, to VOM Radio, and I'll be back when he's finished with an answer to a question from one of our listeners. Here's Brother John from Syria. Good morning. It's great to be here with you again, and uh, it's a joy to be with our brother and sister here in Oklahoma, Tulsa, with, uh, and sharing about what's more, what's happening in Syria and with the family, our family in Syria. Uh, and if you heard me before, I am sorry, because you get to hear it twice. <laughs> so uh, this morning, today, and before, I was here last year as well, spoke. Uh, God is a powerful God, and, and in the midst of everything, He's alive and he's living God. I just shared with you a statistic about Syria before. Uh, for the people who do not know and the new people, Syria was a uh, UN statistic. We always, uh, always love to share that because it's given reality and an image of the picture of Syria was the fourth safest country in the world. And, and in that statistic itself, that's the UN, it was safe environment, well-controlled, safe, that people had life, normal life. They could go to work and exist. Another thing you would not know about Syria, Syria was one of the countries in the Middle East that's the only country that had any debts in the Middle East. It was self-sustained. Everything, they produced everything from, from plantation and they exported to neighbor countries from medication. They, had, they, they made medication inside Syria, so they had factories, on factories. Everything was self-produced in Syria and exported outside Syria. Before this war, and you all seen the Nina's prayer video, and you seen the image of destruction and the chaos, and then the fact that was taking place. But everything just vanished. Security and safety just vanished. I was sharing this morning. We prayed, 
And I always thought we prayed for revival in Syria, and we thought of revival is going to come to our nation. Is a revival going to uh, going to come, and and, and we're going to get that big stadium in Damascus. We have the largest stadium in Syria is in Damascus. When are we going to get that? And it was a dream because how in the world you're small, we not even cannot count ourselves in numbers on our fingers, and we're going to get a big stadium and get it filled. But that's what we prayed. We prayed for revival. We thought revival that we experienced here in the West, that the multitude is going to come, and they're going to come down the aisle and accept Jesus Christ, and revival is going to break loose out of it. And we prayed for years, and we began to fast and pray. And it started with a small community. They began to fast and pray, and, and, and then it got bigger and bigger. And the first three days of the month, they began to fast and pray for revival in Syria. Well, in fact, we asked the Syrian government, and they gave us permission to use the stadium. But not just that. They told us, use it for free. You don't have to pay rent or anything. But as the people gathered, as the believers who were praying for that revival, the churches as they praying for that revival, uh, they felt it's not God's timing. That's before the war. We're going before the war started on Syria. That's all that's taking place. It was not that they did not have peace from the Lord to, to take this action yet. So they prayed and prayed. And there is one thing came. They felt the Lord need to bring more the church, the church, the church in unity. Look, we fasted, we prayed. But we're waiting for the unity of the believer because that's where revival starts. I love the book of Acts, the book of Acts, the book of action. I, I call it the book of revival because action took place. In the, and I want to read with you um, Acts 1. Verse 14, and look what the Bible, what the Lord said, and that's a start of revival, and this is from the church in Syria, their experience, right? I'm not trying to tell you, this is our experience in Syria. With one spirit, verse 14, all these, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together, not just to prayer, together in unity with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Goes back to first chapter 4. I want to go to go chapter 4. Chapter 4, talk when there were John, and, uh, John and Peter were in prison and the release of the prison. And what happened with the brother, they began to gather after they were released and they were celebrating in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth. And see and everything in them. In verse 30, it goes down and look what happened in that book of Acts. And when they heard, they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak to the word of God with boldness. That is revival. Prayer and fasting, but there is unity that can accomplish the work of God. When we prayed for revival for years and years, we prayed for revival. We had no idea what revival is going to come. But when we did, it wasn't the stadium. We got it. It was free offered to us. But it was not what we thought. It came and it was the bloody revival because revival, the one, the God we worship, when we seek that revival, it's a costly revival. It has a cost to it. And somebody will pay that price. 
And perhaps it is you and I who will be paying that price. The churches, the body of Christ has paid that price for revival in Syria. As today I heard the story this morning, I was talking to Syria, a Christian family as they're evacuating one of the area that's taken by Jabhat al-Nusra. The woman and the father and the mother, they reign. They captured the father, they killed him. But they, begin, they killed the daughter in front of the mother. The mother was able to escape, to live the agony as a widow and a mother with not a child. Suffering destruction of those horrific things that has taken place among the Christian. Somebody will pay the price and why it's going to be us, the believers. Look, look. We begin to pray for revival in Syria. Everything erupted. Beginning of the eruption in Syria, everything began to happen, right? And the chaos. And they begin to protest in the street. And as they're protesting in the street, and the masks and the rubble, and the rebels and the radical begin to shout as they begin to shout. And, and this is extremist spring begin to come up. And, and they begin to shout, Alawai to, to the dead, to the grave, and the Christian to Beirut. So they're trying to kick us out. And remember, this is a secure environment we were living in. Fear begin to come to our hearts. Where do we go? Our houses, our, our everything we owe, everything we have, our children, our life. Where do we go? So we begin to pray in our church. And I remember I was sitting in the church and we were sitting in this prayer meeting. And as we are sitting in this prayer meeting and we are praying. And imagine yourself in that setting. And as you're praying, we begin to pray for protection, Lord Protect the Christian, protect us, protect our women, protect our children. As, as we're praying that prayer, the pastor, the leader, he began to pray for the radical Muslim. and began for the Syrian government, for the regime. So all of a sudden, the move or the shift, as this, together we're praying for ourselves and we begin to pray for our enemies. If you remember in that video, Lydia's prayer, there is one statement she made. And this is the statement of the church in Syria. We begin to pray. I'll come back to that statement as we're praying. We're praying for our enemies, but out of fear. But we kept praying. We kept praying until the Lord conquered our hearts. And we begin to pray. And we prayed not out of fear, but out of love for our enemy. And that statement, you know it. And you heard it probably hundreds of times in that video. And listen to the Christian in the Middle East and in Syria who said this. We love the Muslim people. We hate that spirit of Islam. We love the Muslim people, but we hate the spirit of Islam. We pray and we begin to pray till we pray out of love. Then we will be able to see our enemy. The enemy is the spirit. It's not the Muslim people. They are the victim of the spirit of Islam. We begin to recognize the enemy is the spiritual warfare because we struggle not with flesh and blood. We struggle with the spirituality, the, realm of this, the spiritual realm of this world. That is our enemy. We pray 
for the homosexual. We love the homosexual people, but we hate the spirit of homosexuality. We need to recognize our enemy. But it took one thing. I'll go back to the first Acts 1 in, uh, Acts 1 in verse in verse 14, and look, look to what happened. All these with one accord, with devotion, devoting themselves to prayer together, unity. One spirit, unity. To see, to experience revival was not the big stadium. It took the unity. So they began to pray for the unity in Syria, for the church to come together in unity. And when that took place, revival broke loose. And I pray for the nation of America as we are coming to the National Day of Prayer. When you guys begin to pray for your nation, watch what you pray for. But you pray for unity among the church. You pray that the churches in America would not be caring about its own only. The agenda, the program will care about each other. And when the church began to care about each other, that's what God desired, caring for the kingdom of God. Look, what's happening in America, and I was sharing this morning, the political world, the politicians are caring for their own agenda. They're caring for the economical interest. They're looking for something that more, the power interest. And our allies in America are our enemies, and the enemy of the believers. Are the, your allies of the nation of America is the enemy of the church. Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Iran, they put their hand in the hand of Satan. And I want to encourage you as the body of Christ, let's look to God and not to the politician. And let's get in unity together with the church around the world. And then begin to hear and be the rule, the true voice of the voice of the God, the voice of the martyrs, and the voice of the church around the world. May God cause this unity in America. May God pray, bring revival to the nation in America. And may God use you to be the voice of the persecuted. Called perhaps this is the time to bring the message from overseas. And the letter, the letter of Ephesians, when the, Paul wrote it from prison, right? And that's letter that came from prison. Maybe the church in America need letters from prisoners around the world for that revival to break in. We need more letters in the, from, from, from people who are being persecuted from the church around the world to the church in America, the letters of a vision to encourage, to build the church in America and the church around the world. This is my prayer that God will revive the spirit of the church in America with the spirit of the church around the world, will connect us together as one body of Christ. One of the brother, our brother in Christ, uh, he's, uh, I, um, he's a uh, dear friends, and I told his story before, but he's the same evangelistic guy who loved to evangelize and go. He was sitting in the taxi, was heading to Damascus, and he, just, he goes to Damascus to the church to go out and evangelize in the community. So this brother, he's sitting in the taxi. He was sharing the gospel with the Muslim driver, and he's waiting on more people to come into the taxi. Somebody came without them paying attention and put a uh, uh, explosion underneath the car. The car went off. They took them to the hospital. The driver died, did not survive. Our brother survived that. And we think, I, we think, we don't know, but we think perhaps was targeting our brother because he's an evangelist. He lost his hearing. He lost his, uh, a huge part of his legs and and. And he got all this different from the explosion things in his body, but he survived. 
And he lived to tell the story and to go back on the street and share the gospel. Suffering and the God we worship, it has a cost and we have to carry that cost. Perhaps it is death. And we have to be faithful to what's about to come. Look, I always say, I used to think of America, there is persecution going on. Everybody here, there is persecution coming to America. And this is reality, but I think today it's not coming, it's already on the way. It's already made the turn, and we are heading toward being persecuted. My prayer, the Lord will prepare the church's heart, and the churches will be able to come to come in unity together. And those in Syria who work together and cared for one another, those churches have survived and lived and they saw the multitude coming to Jesus Christ. Those who did not want to work with the other and only cared for their own struggled, and they're now empty churches. That's facts. Unity. Unity comes with the prayers and fasting when you seek revival. May God allow us, as you see the church around the world, Syria, the Middle East, the suffering of the Christian, to help us learn from them and so we can walk this path that they have walked and I know in my heart the church in America there are thousands of faithful believers and they will be faithful but I pray the Lord will bring unity among the churches in America I want to share one story about a guy and I don't think I have shared that in here in the middle of a prayer service, we had a gathering, and the churches are multiplying. And for those who do not know, there are thousands who are coming to know Jesus Christ. And they're coming, and many questions we hear, who is this Isa that we are seeing in dreams and vision? Who is this man, Isa? And they're asking about it. And the people, some of them were able to hear the gospel. Well, in the middle of the service, one of our services in Damascus, in the middle of the service, and it's packed, and many Muslims come to it, and they're fully covered. So you don't know what they, they're targeting churches and I'm, uh, they, with suicide bomb or explosion. So, so we don't know if one of them will have a bomb, will leave it, designate it. And we have our children in the churches as well. So in the middle of the service, a man walk in, sit up front, and he looked like a radical Muslim, and he sit up front. And the pastor was sharing the, God, the message, and he began to share the gospel message. And all of a sudden, this man in the middle of the service shouted, Allahu Akbar! And everybody panicked, because that's the statement when they say, Allahu Akbar, God is bigger, when they're ready to designate themselves off, to kill themselves. And that's suicide bombers, right? So right in the middle of the service, he shouted, Allahu Akbar. We people panicked. And all they could think people about, the, how can they exit the church and run for safety? The Lord gave the pastor wisdom and calmness to continue with the message. And he began to share about the gospel and God's love. The second time, the third time, this guy shouted, Allahu Akbar! And everybody's intense, and the Lord gave him wisdom. Toward the end, this man, one of the first few who came to know Jesus Christ, accepted Jesus Christ in his life. But listen, he had no other expression. He, he went to interact with the message. He didn't know what to respond all he knew, he didn't know hallelujah, amen, praise God. All he knew, Allahu Akbar. So he's shouting, Allahu Akbar. And everybody's looking at him fearfully for their life. This guy listening to the message to hear the gospel message. People are thirsty for the truth, the one we have and we carry. And we need to share 
the good news with the people around us. Pray for revival, but revival come with a cost. And my prayer that God will bring unity to the nation of America, to the, sorry, to the church in America, among the churches in America, as they pray and fast for their nation. May the Lord bless you, encourage you, and I again thank you for this opportunity to come and share with you. You're listening to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. I hope you've been encouraged and challenged by the message of Brother John from Syria. I hope you'll be challenged to pray more fervently for the church in Syria and also to pray for the persecutors, for the enemies of the gospel there, that they will come to know Christ in a personal way. We're going to switch gears a little bit now and answer a question from one of our listeners You can always give us a question or comment or feedback about our show online at vomradio.net. That's vomradio.net. Or you can call our toll-free comment line, 1-800-757-5069. 1-800-757-5069. Our question this week comes to us from Scott in Huntington, Indiana. And uh, I'm going to read his question because I think it's an interesting one. And then I've invited... Uh, Cole Richards, who leads our international work to help answer this question. So here's the question from Scott in Huntington, Indiana. I'm curious about self-defense and its place among believers. With so much danger and persecution, is it out of the question to fight back? I'm not speaking of an offensive attack. I'm merely wondering if being prepared to defend one's family, home, or life is at all appropriate. Granted, I think the example set by Jesus on the cross or Stephen as he was being stoned has to be the standard response to persecution as required by love. But, and I think Scott's being very honest here, but I envision my own response to someone entering my house with the intent to harm me or my family. I do not see calm prayer as my first response. I'd be lying if I said my first thought would not be to grab a weapon of some sort and defend my family, my life, and my home. So, Cole, I I think every American can identify with this question. Wait a minute. Someone's coming into my house. They're attacking my family, and you're telling me I'm supposed to love them and pray for them. What is the the place for self-defense? And and we see this in our brothers and sisters overseas, too. What is the place of self-defense in a persecution attack? We've really found there to be two different positions on this among the churches in which we serve overseas. And I want to make the point that we serve them. They're being led by the Lord. We don't try to influence them on this issue, really. We try to serve them the best we can. Uh, But let me start with the first approach, which is really a nonviolent approach. Now, there are some in the body of Christ that embrace nonviolence in terms of really being pacifistic or believing that violence has no place as followers of Christ. And that's really a minority position. Um, but I want to give it its due. You know, I, I think that as believers, we should certainly allow for that position and, and respect it. And there is bravery involved in not uh, using violence in many ways. And you can see that example in Christ, though he could have commanded legions of angels to come to his defense. He chose not to. Why? Because he was following the will of the Lord. And he knew that. So I think we need to give place for this when our brothers and sisters feel they're led not to defend themselves. 
they may be led by the Lord, and we give them room to discern that for themselves. But more often, people choose not to embrace violence because it's not, uh, in their minds, effective or a sound tactic. In other words, they know that it can't work. So since they know they can't effectively defend themselves, they adopt a nonviolent approach. And in that sense, they're choosing to be a witness to eternal realities instead of fighting for their temporal realities. Reminds me of uh, Pastor Wormbrand writing in Tortured for Christ. He talks about, you know, the guards would beat us and we would preach to them and they were happy because they could beat us and we were (laughs) happy because we could preach to them. And I think that comes into play in those cases where it's not going to work to fight back. So the by not fighting back, you have an opportunity to be a witness. You have an opportunity to say, hey, we're different from you. We're not fighting back. Yeah, and the way I can characterize that, and it's very powerful, I think this is a great thing for American Christians to contemplate, is it makes such a strong statement because radical Muslims today will kill for their faith, And it's very powerful when Christians say, you know what, you're willing to kill for your faith, I'm willing to die for mine. I'm willing to die to show you the love of Christ. It's very powerful. Um, But that kind of bridges me to the second position, which I want to give uh, credence to as well, which is believers in many places do defend themselves. And again, if you have a completely nonviolent or pacifistic viewpoint in your Christian faith, you know, fine. But many Christians, and this is the majority position, believe that they that it's okay to defend yourself. You know, so sometimes people kind of get it wrong in the sense that when we when they read the scripture and it talks about loving your enemy and blessing those who persecute you, that that has to mean pacifism. Most Christians don't think that's correct. And in places where we work, believers do defend themselves in reasonable ways. An important point to understand, and I think American Christians miss this is that in these profound persecution environments, the Christians usually know that they cannot defend themselves, that there's absolutely no chance. And so at that point, it leads them to other conclusions. So here in the U.S., we always think about defending ourselves because at some level, we really believe or know that we can. We have access to, uh, you know, weapons or fences or security systems or all these things. So I want to bear out the point that our brothers and sisters in these environments where we work are really helpless in the physical sense. Uh, It's interesting because in Scripture, Christ talked about believers being as lambs led to the slaughter. You think of a completely defenseless lamb led to the slaughter. And so our brothers and sisters in places like northern Nigeria, in the Middle East right now, in many contexts, really are like that. They, they know that they cannot defend themselves in the temporal world, and all they have at that point is to trust in the Lord. And, of course, they're encouraged by the support we can give them as the body of Christ. I think our mindset is, if I can hold them off, then the uh, police will yeah. come. That, that's the thing. If, you know, if someone's breaking into my house, if right. I can hold them off a little while, the police are going to come. If I'm in northern Nigeria, <laughs> the police are not going to come. That's they're not right. going to help. If the army comes, it might get worse for me. So um, it's a very different mindset, and I think it's hard for Americans to put ourselves in that position where if you call the police, it gets worse instead of better. Um, That that, helps to understand why they make those decisions. Yeah, that's exactly right. 
Cole Richards, thank you for helping us unpack this a little bit. Scott in Huntington, Indiana, thank you for your question. I hope that kind of helps to as you think about this issue. If you have uh, some further thoughts you'd like to share with us about this, we'd love to hear from you on our website, which is vomradio.net. You can add to this conversation. You may have a question of your own you'd like to ask. You can also, as well as vomradio.net, you can call our comment line, one 800 757 5069. 1 800 757 5069. Cole, thank you very much for helping us. Thank you, Todd. My thanks to Brother John from Syria, also to Cole Richards. Thank you for joining us. I hope you'll pray for the people of Syria this week and that you'll be back with us next week on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. <laughs>